We've got a couple of house cleaning things we need to get in order quickly. Make sure that we're all on the same page. Saturday night, this coming Saturday night, set your clocks up. I want to tell you now so that you don't end up off time Sunday morning. You might miss something. Next Sunday, Tom Hoyle will be here. And you've heard him before. He's a creation science guy. And uh, I look forward to it. The preaching schedule is altered to reflect that he's going to be here. So if you, have, if you took an old one, there are new ones out there. If you're taking notes, you might want to take note of this. Uh, these, in case you need to get a hold of me, there's contact information right there. And I even put my office number that I'm, I'm usually somewhere nearby my office. That's a direct number. It doesn't have to go through secretaries. So that's direct to me. You would call me if it's urgent and important because I'm usually busy. But I want to be available to you if you need something from me. My cell phone, I prefer you don't uh, leave a voicemail because I can't manage all the voicemails. So if you call and I'm not at either of these numbers, text me or email me, and I will get back to you as soon as I can. I don't have access to my personal email or my cell phone Monday through Friday, typically from about 8 till sometimes 9, but uh, 8 to about 4.30ish. I don't have access, but <clears throat> there you have it. Write it down. If you need it again, let me know. We're going through a series, Authentic Living Today. We're going to take a break from that next week, but we'll be right back at it. And I look forward to Mr. Hoyle's presentation. I'll be here for, the, for, for that because I, I want to hear what he's got going on. But today it's Called to Uniqueness Part 1. There will be more than one of these Called to Uniqueness things, but today it's the Holiness Mandate. And you'll see why it's called that as we move on. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 is where we pick up from where we left off last week. It begins with therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? Well, if you weren't here, you missed it. If you want to back up and read to see where we've gone, you can do that. But the therefore is connected to what was just said earlier in Peter. But we're moving on. Therefore, preparing your minds for action... Notice that little note I left up there. That's a note that's in my Bible because I wanted to, to clarify for you. It actually, if it's literally translated, would say, girding up the loins of your minds. You can understand why the translators wouldn't say it that way because then you'd have to start getting on your smartphones and going, okay, what does that mean? I forgot. You might start doing that. Girding up the loins of your minds. What is that? Well, when you see the word girding, you might think of what they were doing in those times, uh, and that would be wrapping their waist in a thick girdle for protection, for strength. So if you think of girding, you can think of girdle. <laughs> but what is this girding up your minds? You've got to get your minds ready for what Peter is about to deliver. In other words, you're not going to be able to passively just read this. You can't just 
read this part of 1 Peter, this letter that's for us. You can't just read this and, and then just like, just, I read it. No, you, you need to pay careful attention. Remember in elementary school, put on your thinking caps. Same kind of thing. Get ready to wrap your mind around this. He's going to give us something that we, we have to think about. That's not something that is real trendy today. I was allowed to take a class in seminary, my first undergraduate graduate seminary. I was allowed to take a class on logical reasoning. It was a four-hour class taught by Seth Wilson. It was a scary class because most people didn't pass that class throughout the history of it being taught. But logical reasoning is actually, it's, it's like the mathematics of the way we think supposed to think, the way we're supposed to do it. Logical reasoning used to be a forced class if you were going to go to law school and become a lawyer and then maybe even a judge, you had to understand thoroughly logical reasoning. In most college courses now, it's relegated to about two weeks in the middle of a philosophy class. Even in law school, it's no longer required. You don't have to focus on thinking to be a lawyer or a judge. What you're supposed to focus on now is swaying a jury, which more often than not is all about emotions. And Peter is saying, I know you're going through stuff. I know it's not easy. I know you've got things weighing heavy on you and your emotions are all over the place sometimes. You need to get ready to wrap your minds around this. And being sober-minded, which means you don't need to have clouded judgment of any kind. If you're going to read this, if you're going to absorb this, if you're going to learn what I'm saying to you, Peter's saying, you need to be clear-headed. So if you came in this morning and there's things that are clouding your judgment, if you came in this morning and you've got stuff at work, stuff you, maybe you even wish you had stuff at work, or maybe you've got stuff at home, maybe you've got family issues that are, this, you're going through that are difficult, maybe you've got um, some relationship issues with neighbors that are tense, maybe you've got some health issues that bother you and even bother you right now. If you've got things going on in your mind, um, that might cloud your judgment. You need to, you need to get that out of there. Or, or you're going to miss what God's got for you. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because our hope is in Jesus Christ. The people that, I don't know if you've seen this, but people that have even put tattoos on their arms that say Jesus on the the anchor is because that is where the hope is. We, we set our anchor, our hope is in Jesus Christ, and in the end, what will be revealed to us will be greater than we can even imagine, even as we study the most eschatological books in the Bible. Peter's got something for us, and he wants us, as we're going through the difficulties of life, to set our hope on the grace that comes through Jesus Christ that will be fully revealed in the end. He continues, as obedient children, notice the implication from the beginning. He is presuming 
that we're behaving under God, that we are doing what we're supposed to be doing as Christians. And he says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You used, you, used to, you, didn't, you didn't know any better, and you did things as you chose to do them in your ignorance. Don't be conformed to them. Now, you need to grab a hold of this concept of conforming. When you make something, let's say you make some candies and you pour candies into the molds, the, 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 the material goes around and it goes into all the little cracks, into all the little lines so that it makes a good looking piece of candy when it's done. But when the material is too cold or it's too thick, it won't conform to the mold. It won't come out the way you wanted it. You were trying to mold it to be like that, the mold. It's supposed to look like it's supposed to in the end. But if, if it's not, if it's resisting you, it doesn't turn out the way you wanted. Well, Peter knows that you know this, and he's just reminding you, you used to just conform to what everybody else wanted you to be doing. You used to, when people would push you and they would pressure you, you would just be what they wanted you to be, that was in your ignorance. Don't be conformed to what others want you to be and to what the others want you to do. Don't do that. You, you know better. You didn't know better before. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, for a moment, I want you to understand Anytime you come across scripture that tells you you need to behave, it starts off with behaving children of God, you need to behave. Um, if scripture is going to tell us we need to do something, it's because God knows we're going to have a likelihood that we might veer off. Why would he have to remind us of something unless we have the possibility of us not doing that? And you sitting here today, it's a possibility that you might veer off. You might have veered off. Don't. Obedient children of God, don't. And he uses some language we're going to get into in a minute. But first I want to tell you about um, an author uh, that... Uh, I wanted to get his first name. Walter Michel. He is uh, in 19... You can see the book that will come up behind me. In 1972, I think it was, in the early 70s, he, is, he was a professor at Stanford, and he is very respected. He, in fact, he's considered an expert in his field. I highly recommend this book. It is not a Christian book. But the idea is, how, how many of you have heard about the marshmallow test? I know some of you have. Yeah. So let me give you, in a nutshell, what, what happened. He just wrote this book a few years ago, but he did this study starting back in 1972, I believe it was. What he did was, because Stanford had a daycare within their facility for their staff, he was able to get permission to do this exercise. And they had a room where they had this um, two-way mirror so people could observe, and they would use the children in the daycare for the tests. And what they would do is first the main... Uh, player with the child, the main uh, person that would be interacting with the child, would go in and earn trust. 
So first they go in, and there's a table in there, and they sit down and get to meet the child. They talk to the child, and they tell the child something like, uh, you see that clock right there? So when that hand moves to the, the five, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to leave, and I'm going to come right back. And I'll be right when that hand gets on the five, I, I'll be right back. And so the adult leaves the room and then re-enters the room precisely when that hand right on the five. Walks right in, the kids saw it, it happened. Why do they do this? They do a series of these types of things to prove to this child, this adult does what he or she says. Because the child might be exposed to an adult that doesn't. Let's just go ahead and flesh that out just a little bit. They might have a parent that says in the store, if you don't come with me right now, I'm going to leave you. And no parent is going to do that because that's against the law. And the child knows this, but the parent says this, and the child knows, oh, no, you won't. So the child will do whatever the child wants to do because the threat means nothing. That adult doesn't say what they mean and follow through. Or they might have another situation where if you do that, this is going to happen to you, and they do it anyway. And instead of actually following through, the parent says, okay, all right now, this time I mean it. You know what I'm talking about? Or there might even be a teacher who's like, okay, in our preschool class today, uh, wait a minute, I told you to stop that. Okay, you did it anyway. All right, so, all right, there's, there's one. Okay, you did it again. Two. And so we just teach kids... You get to misbehave as much as you want, and I'll put a mark on the board, and nothing happens. Uh, that kid might be taught these types of behaviors. So in this 1972-ish uh, setting where it began, it continued beyond 1972, um, the, the person, the adult that would be interacting with the child would prove to the child that adult does what he or she says. They know this. Now they trust. Then the adult starts talking to them and, and gives them this little plate of goodies. Usually they try to target it for what the child likes. Marshmallows was a general one. I don't, I don't get it because I'm not a huge marshmallow fan, but I guess people are. So I think I like them in my hot chocolate and, and, and in my cereal. But uh, they put a plate of goodies, whatever those goodies were, and a small amount on there. And then the adult would say, hey, I'm going to leave. Uh, you can have what's on this plate, but if you, if you wait and don't eat any of this, I will give you more. I'll be back in just a little bit. So the adult leaves. And then the child is left to make a decision. Do I want to gratify my desires right now? Or can I wait for a greater thing later? And the tests were done, called the marshmallow tests, and they would track what the, child, what the children would do. And they determined these children became adults. They would track them through life. And the most successful adults out of all of those studied, and there were many, were the ones who chose to pass on the self-gratification, instant gratification. Delayed gratification. The children that could do delayed gratification were the most successful financially and throughout other areas of their lives. Now, I thought when I read the book, I thought I was going to read that there's just some kids are just destined to be successes and some not. You know, you can't teach them. 
But that's not the conclusion. The conclusion was you could. Through all the studies, you could teach people you don't have to do instant self-gratification. Delayed gratification is far better. Self-control, essentially, is what this is. One of the things that's interesting they discovered is that these children, sometimes when they would come back in the room and the adult would say, oh, you can have them now and you can have more, those children would ask for baggies or things like that and say, can I uh, take this home? I'll enjoy it later. Even, even going further than they expected them to go. It was pretty cool. But this, this study tells us a lot about human behavior. And they learn that sometimes it's a learned behavior, that just instant gratification is what people want most of the time. And they've learned this from their parents and their peers. But the good news is that if you can get a grip on your instant gratification and learn that you don't have to do that, get a grip of self-control, life's going to go better for you. So let's go back to that passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. Notice when it says, you shall be holy for I am holy, I want you to notice something. I want to give you some Greek words. First, I want to give you the New Testament word for holy, hagios. You can see it up behind me, and you can also see the way you say it. I got that up behind me if you want to write that down. Hagios. And it means set apart, sacred. It's translated holy most of the time. But you notice up, ahead, up above in verse 16 where it says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's a quote from Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. And I thought, wait a minute. There's a Hebrew word here. So I looked up the Hebrew word, because sometimes when you have a Hebrew word that you use a Greek equivalent, something's lost in the translation. So I wanted to look at that. And, and oftentimes that happens. So here is the Hebrew word. You can see it up behind me. There you go. And the way you say it is hibdalti. And it is translated separated or sacred. Or holy. Now, I'm going to put a little ring around this because I want you to notice something. They mean the same thing. There's nothing lost in translation. From the Hebrew language to the Greek translation, they pretty much mean the same thing. One is set apart and one is separated. Now, I want to illustrate this for you today in front of all of you by bringing the perfect candidate to come up on the stage to help me out. She's shy. Don't clap or anything. That might make it worse. Crystal, can you come up here now? What I would like Crystal to do, I told her I had a gift for her. You don't have to look at everybody either. That's okay. I would like for you, I told her I had a gift for her, and what I have here is a bunch of ugly rocks. It's just a bunch of rocks, but there's one in there that might be special. And I would like you to look in here as far as you want and find a special one that you get to have. Find a real special one. Right here. See if you see anything right there. Did you find anything special? Yeah. Okay, so can you put it right here? I'm going to have you take it again in a minute. Um, okay, you can sit down. I'm going to call you back up in a minute. Thanks, Crystal. She did an excellent job. She picked the one I thought she would pick. And I seared her towards where it was. Can't... These rocks, I don't know if you can see them. They're all like a, just dark. They're kind of 
they're not that great. This one is special. Can you tell? Can you can you tell that special? I don't know if from where you're seated where you're seated, but this is I like playing with toys, so I will show you how special it is. Be careful, and you might squint while I do this if I can shoot it. You see how special that is? Oh, that's cool. Crystal gets to take that home today, but not the thing in my pocket. All right. <laughs> that could upset airline pilots if it's used improperly. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of rocks there that Crystal looked at, and she found a special one in the middle of all of them, and she separated it, the Hebrew word separated, or set it apart. It's, it's not with the rest because it's not like the rest. And if I were to shoot a laser at those other rocks and put them up, they wouldn't do that. That one's special. That one's definitely special. In fact, isn't it, isn't it interesting the way this played out? Because I had a different plan. And I didn't even realize Crystal's name. And it's connected to what she picked, kind of. Kind of like a crystallized rock or whatever. Kind of cool. Well, and it could be that maybe Crystal needs to know that she's special, that she's not like others, that, that she's separated, she's set apart. In fact, that just happened. She got up on the stage and you didn't. She got up here and she picked that and she's the only one that gets to take that home. And that's kind of cool. That makes her special for a moment in front of all of us. I'm sure her family tells her how special she is. God wants to know this. He wants you to know this about you. Uh, there are times in life where you feel alone, and it may be because you're supposed to, because you're not like everybody else. None of us really are. But as Christians, even more so. If this were to represent the world, this would be the world with all the rocks that all blend in and all look very similar. And this would be the Christian that could be with all the rocks, but doesn't, doesn't really fit, doesn't really belong, doesn't, doesn't blend in. Because Christians are set apart. They are separated. Unique. We're, we're not like the world. We're not supposed to be. First Peter 1.17 continues, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, I was at a Bible study with people that I love, people that I respect. Many, many years ago, I was, I was very young. At the time, believe it or not, I was considered totally and permanently disabled. God did some amazing things through the hands of a very creative doctor and team of surgeons, and so now I'm not, so I'm very thankful for that. But at the time, I was, and I had, I had some time I went to this Bible study, and at this Bible study, the teacher said, we're going to start studying the subject of fear. 
And I would like everybody to go home and read fear. Read what you can about fear in the Bible. And we're going to come back and we'll talk about it. And I was so excited and I had time. So I was at home. I had all this time. I, I studied. And we got back together and there's a, a good, there's at least this many people in the room. And I was eager. And, and when she, she stood up in front of everyone and she said, uh, did anyone read on fear? I threw my hand up. Yes, I did. I was very glad that I did what the students should do. And a couple others said they read, and she asked what people read, and I said, well, I, I just took the Strong's Concordance, and I looked up fear and other words related to fear, afraid, and I read all of the, the lines, and if I knew the context, I didn't look it up, but if I didn't remember the context, I would look it up. So I've looked up every reference to fear and afraid and related words in Strong's Concordance so I could wrap my head around fear in, in the Bible. That's what I did. When I said that, she said, well, I looked it up, and there's a lot of references just to fear and strong. I'm not about to say that I looked all of that up. And I thought, oh. So I think she was saying that I didn't do it. But I did. I was young. I didn't, didn't let it bother me too much. And then she asked us what we thought, what we learned. And I said, well, I believe that fear is a good thing when you're fearing God because he wants us to fear him. It says in Proverbs 1, 7, you can't even begin to have knowledge without fear of the Lord. And I was challenged by the teacher and her husband who were saying that, no, you should have no fear. They had two books. She stood up and she said, well, both of these authors say you shouldn't have any fear whatsoever. And I said, well, I held up my Bible and said, well, this one says I'm supposed to. And... <laughs> But I got the impression, and it went further. The conversation went even further than that, and I don't want to take you through all of that. But I just felt like I wasn't welcome, and I didn't go back. But since that time, I, I actually went home, and I, I read more, and I tried to learn more. And I, I've learned that the Bible teaches you are supposed to fear God. Here we are in our text today, and, and we're supposed to wrap our hands around this. So don't fall, preacher. You're not disabled anymore. Um, we're supposed to fear. Look at what it says clearly. It says you're supposed to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. What's the time of your exile? Well, you've you got to understand he's writing to these people who are not treated like they belong. Because and the reality is, neither do we. And we're oftentimes not treated like we belong. We're supposed to fear God. It's a good thing. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You were saved. Understand you are under the Father. Fear him. Behave. Understand you'll be held accountable to him. He made a great sacrifice that was pure and holy. You need to live accordingly. You're set apart. You're separated. You're not like the others. I know you feel like you don't belong, because you don't. Verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, 
and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That's exactly the way it's played out. Our faith and our hope is in God, the one whom we should fear. Verse 22, having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth. Isn't that an interesting concept? You purify your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. I have to look up. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. I love this passage and I want to show you something. I don't want to belabor you too much with all the Greek. I talked to you about this already. But there is a difference here in a couple of these words that don't come out in the English. So I want to show you something where it says the a brotherly love. That's talking about philos, you know, the, the brotherly love. So it's translated well. But the other one, it doesn't really, it just says love. Well, it's more than that. It's that steadfast love. So I'd like to throw in something up in front of it here. This, look at this. Tenacious, tenaciously love one another. God loves you with tenacity, so you love one another. But I also want to take you to another Greek word, and it says earnestly. This Greek word, if it's literally translated, means without slack. Love one another without slack. In other words, tighten up your love for one another. Don't leave it undone. Love one another tenaciously and tighten it up. Love one another. There's so many one another passages in the Bible, but Christians, we are supposed to love our brothers and sisters in Christ like Christ loved us with tenacity, and we're supposed to get it done right. Don't leave slack in, our, in your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't just simply think, you know what? It looked like so-and-so was having a difficult morning in church. I'm going to pray for them. Don't just leave it there. Check on them. If somebody hasn't been here that normally is here. Don't just pray for them. Check on them. Maybe even go right up to them and ask them. And if they give you a surface answer when you ask them how they're doing, press it. Take up that slack. Don't leave your love for one another unfinished. Complete it. Tena what does it mean to tenaciously love one another with no slack? That means you've got to give a lot of yourself to love others. I know. You could be driving down the highway and you see somebody broken down and it's so much easier just to say, I don't have time. I got things to do. I got my own things I got to worry about. Who's going to love that person if everybody does that? Tenaciously loving other people without slack means, ah, I'm going to have to get off at this exit, turn around, go back. Go down to the other exit, turn around. I'm going to lose a lot of time, fuel, energy. But how else do you tenaciously love one another without slack? Your instant 
gratification is not as important as someone else's need. Love one another tenaciously, without slack. Peter, Peter's gotten wise as he's gone through life. Have you noticed this? No wonder God inspired him to write this for us. We need this. Well, what about the people that are hard to love? Oh, Jesus spoke of that too, didn't he? What are we supposed even the people that are mean, even the enemies, we're supposed to love them. And the way we're supposed to be doing this is with tenacity and without slack. Does it feel good to always to love people who don't love you back? No, it doesn't. But it's not about your instant gratification, is it? And if you want to be successful as a Christian, you might have to just stop for a minute and realize it's not about how it feels to me. It's not about my own good feeling. Wrap your heads around this, Christian. Get your, get your minds focused. Don't be just doing it all based on emotion. It's not about how you feel. It's how God feels. And how does he feel about the way I love people? Am I loving people with tenacity and without slack? You know what? Here's a challenge. I dare you to ask God in a prayer. You could do it right now while I'm talking. You could just ignore a few words of the preacher and you could just say, Jesus, is that the way I love people? Maybe you could ask, Jesus, do you, do you like the way I love people? Ask him. About the time you're ready to ask, you'll know the answer. It continues. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24 and verse 25 as well. This is where Peter wraps up the part that we're going over today. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. Which is cool. It, was, it would be nice if today it worked out where you could see some grass growing unevenly and a few flowers growing. It didn't work out. But you know, how, you know that feeling. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. What we are going through right now is temporary. Look at this. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The good news of Jesus Christ. What you're going through is temporary. This comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. Or, I'm sorry, verses 6 and 8. It skips verse 7, actually. That's what that is from. Everything we're going through. Look at this. I want you to pay attention to something Jesus said in a transitional verse. Remember in Matthew chapter 24, do you remember when Jesus was talking about those days, those days, those days, they will not be equaled with any other. He's predicting, in fact, he's talking about wars and rumors of wars and famine. Remember all that? Remember all that talk? People try to make that into be something we should be watching for today. In fact, people get really caught up. That's a joke, by the way. They get really caught up in end time stuff. They, they get so focused on it. Jesus said, well, a crooked, I'm sorry, a crooked, a wicked and depraved generation seeks after a sign. And people get really caught up in these sign-seeking things. They're like, oh my goodness, there's another war. Did you hear what happened? And oh, there's more natural calamities. I'm telling you, the end is near. People get really, Jesus said, when he was talking about this in Matthew 24, he said, when you see these signs, don't be afraid. 
but a lot of preachers and authors are like, oh, you see the signs? You better be afraid. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Why don't we do what Jesus said? And here's, here's the clincher here in Matthew 24, if you read this. And he's talking about those days, those days, those days, and all these signs of these. He's talking about the destruction of the temple, by the way. Let me clue you in. That already happened. At the time, it didn't. But Jesus was predicting it. And, um, and he's talking about those days, those days, those days. And then he makes a transition, and he says, but let me tell you something about that day. There's a day, I, can, I don't even know. Even the angels don't, angels don't know, I don't know. Only the Father knows. But the transition between is a verse that really sticks out. This is that transitional verse between the those days and that day. And it's this one right here. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Matthew 24, 35. Does that sound similar to, but the word of the Lord remains forever? Oh, yeah, it does. That's pretty cool. God in the flesh making a powerful statement that validates who he is. But one of the things we need to know is what, we are, what we're currently going through is temporary. This whole pandemic thing, the, the stuff you're going through in your families or in your work or your health or, or your mind, finances, whatever it is you're going through, it's temporary. Peter's writing to these that are being heavily persecuted, and he's reminding them, this is, this is temporary. Things of this earth will pass. The Word of God remains forever, and it's true. And you were saved by the grace of God. Set your hope in that. This is the gospel message. Don't lose sight of that. Don't get forced into all of this negativity that the world has, and the world has a lot. Don't, don't force, be forced into that mold. You're not like them. You're unique. In fact, you're sacred, set apart, separate, holy. What God did for us by means of the cross is a beautiful thing. So live accordingly. You made him Lord. Live like it. But wait a minute, wait a minute. Notice how I said, what we're currently going through is temporary. I need to make this more personal. Let me say it clearly. What you're going through is temporary. These inner struggles, you personally. Maybe there's someone here that really needed to hear that today. What you're going through, it's not going to last. But the Word of God does, and there is a hope that we can, we can live with that hope. We can anchor in knowing that Jesus is our hope, and there's so much better ahead for us. Peter is setting us up for more discussion. This is not the end of 1 Peter. We've got a, lot to, a long ways to go. But he's really getting us in check, preparing us for some, some substantial stuff that will encourage us in our daily spiritual journeys. So we're going through this message series, Authentic Living Today, Call to Uniqueness, The Holiness Mandate. Okay, Crystal, now you can come back up here and have your special stone. Even have something for you to put it in. You can have that too. You're welcome. All right.
she's she's special. She's she's not she's not like the others. You're special. You're not like the others. You're not supposed to be. God has separated you because you're supposed to be different. You know, those times you feel alone and isolated, that's part of it. You're not like a bunch of these that all blend in together and look so much the same, and they're not, they're not, they're not special. You are called by God. You have been separated out. Live accordingly. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for reminding us that you have singled us out, each one of us. That you have decided that we are unique and we're called to be holy. We don't want to be like the world. And we're sorry when we, we fail in that. So we ask that you would help us, Lord. You've, you've given us some word of encouragement through the small part of this letter you inspired Peter to write. And thank you for that. Lord, help us to reciprocate this love you've given to us, this wonderful grace, by loving others tenaciously like you love us, without any slack. And Lord, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.